0: Welcome to Build, a new channel on Seeking Wisdom, where we're going deep in how to build products and product teams. I'm Maggie, a PM here at Drift, and I'm super excited to be joined by Martin Erickson, a giant in the products community, uh, founder of Mind the Product, the Both world's-
1: Physically and metaphorically. <laughs>
0: uh, the world's largest product management community and conference, founder of Product Tank, also the co-author of the book on product leadership, an executive in residence, a veteran product person, and the list goes on. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to start really quickly with sort of how you got to where you are. I think a lot of the, the Seeking Wisdom audience are practitioners and we haven't really made the leap to experts. So how did you first get into product and then make that jump and um, into advising product teams? Yeah.
1: So I started actually building stuff online way back in the 90s. So I was kind of tinkering at home in high school, 94, 95, just as the web was exploding. Uh, and back then I was, I guess, a web designer and a web developer, and as mm-hmm. much as I knew how to do HTML and CGI script, which is all web development was back then. And I was started universities. I went to business international business administration uh, at a university in Sweden, but probably spent more of my time in the computer lab than in my classrooms mm-hmm. and lecture halls. So I actually dropped out after two years uh, and went and kind of started working as a web designer, web developer in Stockholm for a couple of startups until the end of 1999 when everything kind of went bust and I ended up moving to London and working for Monster, the job board mm-hmm. as a product manager. And suddenly I was like, oh, there's this whole like library of knowledge. Yeah. And like, Did
0: you know that you wanted to be a PM or that's something that just sort of no. happened? I just
1: knew that I had kind of developed this idea that I was a good generalist and mm-hmm. then I had a little bit of design skill. I had enough kind of technical skills to work with developers, but I was never going to be an art director. I was never going to be an engineer on its own. Mm-hmm. And then I had enough of that business studies, even though I, I dropped out, that like that combination of those three things was a really good generalist role. And I think it was first when I moved to Monster that I kind of discovered that there was this whole title and kind of skill set around it.
0: Mm-hmm. So then how did you go from you know your first experience at product in London at Monster to one of the world's experts in product?
1: I think it was just, you know, as with everything I hope, I think will be a theme of what we're going to talk about today mm-hmm. is kind of it's a journey of learning, right? So I started as a practitioner. I was working on the team, uh, rolling Monster out to the rest of Europe. Uh, and back then, it was much more kind of hands on. So we were building up local teams. We were helping them figure out what are their local requirements. We had product managers in every team. And in a way, totally the wrong way to do it, but in a way, we were kind of the filter between them and the engineering team, which is back then, actually, based here in Boston. And so we kind of got to be that almost a consultant role of like trying to figure out what are the local markets need, but also how do we sell that into the core organization? How do we find the kind of common themes that we can prioritize? But also did a bunch of uh, growth through acquisitions. So we did a bunch of M&A where I would come in and help kind of integrate those products into our existing product stack. And in one of those acquisitions, I actually ended up moving back to Sweden because we had acquired a, an applicant tracking system. Mm-hmm. Uh, very early kind of software as a service. It wasn't even called software as a service back then.
0: What, what um, year was this?
1: This is uh, 2003, 2004, uh, so they were called application service providers.
0: Amazing. Pre-SaaS.
1: Pre-SaaS. And I uh, kind of took over that whole business unit, so I kind of owned both the P&L and the product development. and That was obviously kind of a big step up for me to not just be a, a hands-on individual contributor, but actually own the whole strategy own the PL of it, try to sell that into the rest of the organization, get mm-hmm. all these 14 countries on board with why SaaS might be a good idea instead of just selling job ads. I uh, worked through that for three years and um, then moved on to the Financial Times where I kind of helped them sort out some of their class- online classified stuff. And again, just I think every step in that journey was just kind of figuring out how to look at the bigger picture and, and bring together that bigger picture with my generalist kind of skills. And then the last two product jobs I had were VP of product for startups. And as you know, the first product person, taking over from the founder, building up a team, building up an org, mm-hmm. figuring out how to how, make product work in that org for that customer, for that market. And those were amazing learning journeys of really going from that individual contributor. And I still to this day say that if you're a founder out there starting a business, you're actually better off hiring a Practitioning Product Manager uh, as your first head of product and then giving them the chance to grow into a vp product because if they don't you can always hire a vp later mm-hmm. but you don't need that seniority from day one you actually need someone who can combine the hands on and help you kind of deliver the vision that you already mm-hmm. have in your head
0: so how did you get from there to this expertise
1: i think oh. it was you know just a lot of luck and a lot of searching so while i was at huddle in london in 2010 uh, i was the first product person at all in the company and it can be a pretty lonely job when you're in no a startup and you're the first product person. All the engineers are ganging up on you. All the designers <laughs> ignore you. The founder just keeps telling you to ship features. and mm-hmm. There's kind of no one to talk to and learn from and share with and bitch to, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wanted to just meet other product managers and started this meetup called Product Tank. We had 25 people in the back room of a bar in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, my boss stumped up some cash for some beers. I got some old friends to do some two, two short talks. It was just an amazing time. And I met my two co-founders, Jana and Simon, there, and we kind of just took it on. And I think we would have just been happy there, right, if we managed to get 25, 30 people every right. couple of months talking about product and, like, sharing some of our lessons and being able to, like, offload some of our mm-hmm. pains. And I think we just all share that pain point, right, of mm-hmm. not having enough people to talk to about this and not having enough people to share our experiences with and yeah. learn from and too.
0: Yeah, that's something I know we've talked a lot about within our product team, making sure that you have a, even like a local community of people yeah. that you can just get dinner with quarterly yeah. and just work. Or even an in internal
1: community, right? Yeah. As you start growing, as we structure our teams more and more independently and more and more autonomously, it's so important for everyone on that team to have a community of practice to get back to even mm-hmm. within your own company. So the product manager should be getting together regularly. The designers should be getting re- together regularly. The engineers should be getting together regularly to talk about their specific challenges and what they're seeing is other, you know, great ideas emerging in other parts of the organization.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about this whole autonomous teams thing and how, how you sort of got on this topic. And then I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you maintain autonomy as your company scales and as you add levels. You know, we're at a hyper growth stage. How do we make sure that we maintain that? And what should we be looking out for that we may not know about?
1: We were experimenting with this at Huddle back in two thousand ten, trying to figure out like how do we how do we put the decision making as close to the customers possible. Is basically where it started from for me. And the more layers you put between the people actually building it and talking to the customers and the decision, the more likely that message is to get garbled, right? It's mm-hmm. classic kind of
0: game of telephone, game, if nothing else, right? Yeah. of
1: like just how, how much that message can get garbled. So that's where we started, and we were playing around and we were you a know, small startup at the time. We only had uh, enough kind of resource for two or three teams and we couldn't have a dedicated team owning one, you know, one feature, one customer area. So we had to rotate them around, but we, we tried to give them autonomy within a project. So we would like prioritize a pain point, like all the things that are now kind of coming out as more and more best practice we were trying to experiment with. Um, So we would prioritize themes, and we had this idea of like, okay, we need to fix this area or this customer problem. Mm -hmm. We're going to spend three months on that uh, and then give the team the freedom to figure out what is the best thing that we can do within three months to solve that customer problem. And then rotate them out to do something else because, again, we were too small at the time.
0: So you set a deadline. Yeah. Like you have 3 months no time matter box what. It, right? Okay.
1: So what is the best thing that we can do in 3 months? And we always came up with more, you know, you always have more ideas than you're going to be able to do mm-hmm. in any given amount of time. Like even Google with 20,000 engineers or whatever yeah. ridiculous number they have, they can't do everything they have on their roadmap. So you kind of, for us at the time that was the best approach to do the prioritization piece of like how much time do we want to invest in solving that customer problem right now?
0: Mm, so we generate okay.
1: a bunch of extra ideas, the team would come up with great ideas that end up in an icebox that we then could revisit later, but um, that gave us a way to think about how important is that problem to us, how much time do you want to spend on it before we have to move on to the next big customer problem, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, something I, I get a lot is we set deadlines pretty aggressively, we ship a new feature every single month, but if we you know, we prioritize a customer problem and then we say, okay, we have three months to build yeah. it, and then there's the pushback is always, well, we can't solve the problem in three months. So, like, how do you frame that response to a team?
1: For me, it's always like there has to be some way to make that better in whatever time frame. They, I mean, and obviously, it is a push, push and pull, right? So. If I was trying to make something really tight and I like said, well, you're only getting one sprint, you only get two because we were working in Scrum at the time. So like mm-hmm. if you only had one sprint, two weeks, yeah, OK, this is a bigger idea. We can't do it. Let's have that conversation. But mm-hmm. when we were talking about the bigger themes, we were talking about three month or six month commitments to like we want to spend this month, this team's time. So we had two or three teams. One of the teams focused three months or six months on a specific customer problem. And it worked really well. I think for us, it was a great way to kind of timebox it, prioritize that resource, but also give the team that sense of autonomy that they were part of making the decisions on what happened. So we would do a ton of pre-work in terms of, you know we kind of did a dual track type approach to it. So we did a bunch of pre-work in terms of going out and doing the customer research and looking at the data. And then we'd bring that all in in front of our users, uh, or sorry, in front of our team uh, before we kicked off one of these big projects. And then in that kind of ideation session, the first couple of days, we let the team come up with all the ideas. And I mm-hmm. think that's when I kind of click that that's the best way to do it because inevitably most of the best ideas were not the ones that we had come up with as a product team, right? They were right. engineers coming up with you know things that got us 80% of the benefit for 20% of the effort mm-hmm. um, because they knew the solution space so much better. That when you present to, the, to them what the problem space looks like, they're like, oh, if that's what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. why don't we just do this? And you're like, right. awesome, feature number one, let's put that up on the board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where it kind of started clicking for me. And then I think I became a real evangelist for this whole idea of autonomous teams when... We started doing interviews for the book. When we write we're writing the book, we knew that we didn't want to make it just the viewpoint of the three of us authors, because who wants to listen to three more white guys? Like we need three middle-aged white guys even. So we wanted to be a much more representative of a broader kind of set of people. And we went and interviewed hundreds of product managers, product leaders, and figured out how do you do what you do? Why are mm-hmm. you successful? And we talked to some big companies, small companies. We talked to US startups, European startups. We really tried to kind of have a, a wide, Uh, purview. And I think the recurring theme, whatever people call it, was this idea around autonomous teams, Mm -hmm. decision as close to the customer as possible, you know, customer centric, mission driven, all these good things that we kind of talk about in the book. So that's when I really became like, okay, it's not Mm -hmm. just me. It's not my crazy idea. Everyone's doing some version of this. Let's figure out how we can talk about this more openly and Mm -hmm. how to do this the best way.
0: I 100% agree. I think, especially when I, I listen to a podcast or I read an article and I, I read about autonomous teams, it sounds amazing. What advice would you give to a team that maybe isn't autonomous or wants to be that way? And how do you make that happen, especially if you're not the director?
1: So that, I think that is one of the hardest things out there, right? So if you're the member of a team and you're frustrated because you know you're being given bad, bad prioritization, mm-hmm. basically, and because you're talking to the customer and you know that the things on your roadmap are not the most important things for your customer, I think the advice that I tend to give, which is easier said than done, is simply to start small. Find find something that's, whether it's outside the roadmap or it's a small feature on the roadmap, and show that by thinking about it differently, you can actually have a bigger impact. So I think we were talking about this earlier, an idea around uh, maybe even if you have a feature that's on the roadmap, it has a deadline, Try to step behind the thinking behind that feature. What is it that whoever wrote the thing, whether it's the product manager or one of the founders or someone in the sales team who you know gave you a ticket, mm-hmm. what is it they're actually trying to solve? And then kind of use all the skills that we have in terms of figuring out the problem, figuring out how to, how to best prioritize that, to unpick that and go back to find a, maybe a better solution for that problem that really does take the customer into account and you think it's going to be better because you know more about the customer. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we can do those things in almost kind of guerrilla product management style of just like getting shit done yeah. and showing that it can be done in a better way uh, is the most impactful way to do it. Showing, not telling is always best. And then the more you can show that you're making those changes and that little by little uh, it's having an impact on the bottom line or the customer experience or the, mm-hmm. the, the stats, uh, the more you're going to be given the freedom to, to keep working that way.
0: I imagine that you're giving advice like this to teams all the time. You've been visiting with product teams, and helping them for however many years that it's been. How has your advice changed, sort of over the scope of of that time? And is it has it been autonomous teams from day one, or like how did you sort of work up to that?
1: I think I used to be more flexible on that point. So I probably uh-huh. used to be more forgiving and be like, okay, well, you know, if the founder has a good idea, as long as they're as long as they're doing the validation. Like for for me, the, the cornerstone has always been the customer. Uh, and whatever framework you use for it, whether it's lean or other things like it, as long as you're validating it with the customer, I kind of don't care where the idea came from or who's who's forcing it through. Mm-hmm. But I think more and more I am setting teams up, and especially now as an executive in residence for a VC firm, when I'm going out and talking to these smaller startups that are just beginning this journey, I'm really, really adamant that they're setting themselves up to build an organization in this way. Mm-hmm. So even if they can't do it from day one because they're still just a founder and two engineers, um, that they're starting to think that way, that they're starting to talk that way, they're starting to use that language, they're starting to think about customer validation, they're starting to think about how to let the engineers be part of that process, how to let the engineers be part of the user research, so that as they start growing, that culture's already there and then mm-hmm. they start spitting up new teams, that culture's there, that thinking's there, that autonomy and that decision-making close to the customer is there.
0: I wanna make sure that people who don't, who aren't at the first stage startup can, can do this too. You know, how do they, how do you bring that into your culture if you don't already have it?
1: It's hard, right? That's the hardest thing about all of the things that we do. It's all about people, right? Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about different methodologies and tools and features and things that we can do. But at the end of the day, it's all about people and having the right right team, having the right attitude and then changing attitudes and changing culture is one of the hardest things that we do. And that's why it's so hard to do it in a bigger corporation or an established company. Because they're so set in their ways, mm-hmm. and actually the mo- the worst part is whether it's a startup or a corporate, they've gotten to that success, whatever success they've had, they've gotten there doing it that way. Right. So they see it's even harder than to make them change their minds that they need to think about this differently. Right. So really, again, I kind of use my own tools of like how do you how do you start small. How do you show, Mm -hmm. don't tell, right? So how do you work together with the the engineers almost or the designers just kind of break out a little guerrilla team Mm -hmm. and then show the founders that, hey, we know this is a customer problem. We went and did the research. We talked to the customers. We did this validation. We did a prototype, like whatever it is that you wanted to get done uh, and show that you could move a lever. Mm -hmm. And then that's the thing that starts opening the eyes of the founders of like, oh, wow, and I didn't have to be involved in that. No, but it's still within the vision. It still fits within that kind of goal that we all have. But you got a better result, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, so now you can trust your team, right? So, like, sounds right. oversimplification, obviously, right, but, like but like quick like start wins start that allow them. you to
0: build up yeah. that trust with your totally. executive team that allows you yeah. the freedom to be more autonomous. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, when you go in and you're meeting a team for the first time, what do you do to diagnose, you know, what their particular set of issues are, and like, how can we sort of steal your model to diagnose our own teams?
1: So I don't have like we're all a, about getting the secrets, yeah, so give me the secrets. I don't have a black and white like hard model or anything. But there's definitely things that I look for uh, when I look at startups or or teams. And um, for me, the almost the number one thing I I try to unpick and it's the kind of thing that you can't necessarily ask outright because it's obvious what answer you want. So you kind of have to be a little circumspect around it. But it does come down to how often do they talk to their customer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's surprising how many startups still don't talk to their customers. I mean, you guys are definitely an exception. Uh, there are, you know, I think the most successful ones out there are obviously the exceptions. But there's a lot of startups out there that still fall under the kind of mistaken idea that the founders know everything about that customer. Mm-hmm. They used to be that customer. Mm-hmm. They know the problem they need to solve, and they're going to build a thing for them, right? And I think it's the it's the worst thing that you can do to kind of get stuck in that fallacy of being your own customer, right? And uh, that's one of the big things that I always look for is like how how are the how badly are they stuck in that way of thinking mm-hmm. how little do they talk to their customers and how
0: much how often should we talk to customers
1: as i this is the Call that answer, but as often as possible. Uh, I think it, it is important to figure out the cadence. And I think this is this is the, one of the biggest things, one of the biggest challenges I think around product management is that the answer to all the questions is almost always, it depends. It depends on, you know, market, depends on your product, depends on you, all of these things. But I think the, the bottom line is as often as possible. And then it's kind of a judgment call from there. And I think if we're doing software, if we're doing SaaS, it should be mm-hmm at least a weekly basis, right? You yeah. should be having conversations with customers and getting feedback from customers at least a weekly basis.
0: What else do you look for when you try to figure out if a team is sort of good or bad? And so like, what's your of, mental model around this?
1: Yeah, so a lot of it's around, um, you know, unpicking some of the things around how you how you build great autonomous teams. So what, what are those building blocks are there? So is there a good vision statement in place or a mission mm-hmm. statement? Um, is that a customer-centric one or is it we're going to be the number one something because that's not a customer-centric mission statement. A lot of people get that wrong. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And there's little clues in there like all throughout the way of like, are they thinking about the customer first or are they thinking about we're going to build the best possible product? Um, So that that alignment piece, the vision piece, um, how much, you know, when you're in the room, how much is the founder dominating conversation versus letting other people in the room speak? Mm -hmm. Um, There's things like that that I think can, pretty quickly give you a picture of like, is this a team that's a functional team or a kind of dysfunctional family? And Mm -hmm. can you save that or not?
0: Yep. I know I was reading that. I'm I'm sure we all read those Google articles on how to build a team with psychological safety and all that. How do you, so again, I read an article like that. How do you actually put that into practice? Like, what do you recommend to teams who might be falling into these traps?
1: I think it's, again, it's like the culture change piece, right? It's, It's challenging, but it is kind of a, I treat it very much as a coaching role, so I'm still learning a lot about how to be the best possible coach. It's a whole thing in and of itself. You used to be an athlete. I'm sure you had great coaches and you've seen what that can do. And that's the approach that I try to take. So for me, it's not about trying to teach them. It's not about pointing out when they're wrong. It's kind of taking them aside after a meeting where maybe the founder was like stepping all over their team and being like, how did you think that meeting went?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What were you trying to get across? Mm-hmm. Do you think maybe the team saw this and not that and like do those kind of very soft touch coaching things not do it in a confrontational way not do it in front of anyone else um, and that goes for team members as well right It's not just the founders and really try to unpick that behavior piece and I think that you know that steps into so many other things that we have our own biases and you know diversity challenges that we can have in the office space mm-hmm. as well like how do you unpick those behaviors? Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be done very softly it has to be done kind of outside of the room. Has to be done in a coaching way. Uh, and I think that's where there's more and more people working on coaching around products specifically. Uh, and I think that's a really great thing. And I think we need to see more of that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in, in that theme of sort of best practices and what we, we do or don't need to be doing, and more of at Drift, we have sort of a deep skepticism for best practices and this idea that they're only going to get you to the norm of the day and they're not going to sort of help you go even further than that. So, when you're giving advice to teams, how do you think about best practices, and where are they relevant? And and how do you, you know, as an advisor, how do you start to bring more innovative practices into the companies you work with?
1: So for me, best the, when I talk about best practices, it's things like being customer centric, it's being mission driven, it's having uh, you know regular cadence of customer feedback and, and insight. Those are the best practice things for us, and I think for for me, and I think that's where that's something we we should all be doing anyway. Mm-hmm. But the level below that is kind of when you start talking about methodologies or different ways to do that or different tools you should be using and you know whether it's lean or agile or design sprints or user research or ethnography like whatever those things are that's where i become completely agnostic and i think they're all tools in a toolbox and they're all great tools there's they're all useful in different things mm-hmm. in different scenarios and i think what i hope that i can bring to the table because I've been around the block once or twice, is kind of how to apply those tools and when to pick the right tool. Mm -hmm. So when I go into those teams, I tend to be thinking a lot about, okay, are they hitting that very top level best practicing, like how often they're talking to the customer, how often they're doing that, and ram that point home first. Mm Because if they're not even doing that, I don't care what they're doing after that. But if they're doing those things, then it's like, okay, what are the specific challenges that we need to solve here? What are the best tools for us to use? And I think even those tools are, something I see as a great starting point. So mm-hmm. I would often get a team, you know, we did this at Huddle, we went in hard on Agile and Scrum, and we were doing sprints and estimations and all these things. And we kind of went a little bit too far, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we then we started applying those things uh, on the practice itself, right, of figuring out what is working, what's not working. Uh, okay, let's strip this apart, let's take this out, we don't need to do that part. And at the end of it, we ended up with our our own kind of methodology. And actually, one of the teams went full Kanban, one team was still kind of doing our version of Scrum, and it kind of didn't matter at that point. But I think the best practices are great, um, or those toolkits are great because they give you a level set, they give you a common language, they give you a common starting point mm-hmm. that you can then improve on and figure out, okay, well that doesn't work for us because our customers aren't working that way or we're in hardware, so two weeks prints don't make sense. Let's make it eight weeks print. Like whatever right. it is that works for you and your team and your market and your customer. I think that's one of the biggest things that I also push on in a lot of these organizations is not to get stuck into that dogma of like, but mm-hmm. the book says, do this. It's like, well, right.
0: Where the process sort of yeah. becomes the point rather yeah. than the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we talk a lot about, you know, results, results, results. Yeah. How do you get focus on those rather than the process by which you're working and how to prevent the process from becoming the thing that you're shipping? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think it's, it's hard, right? And especially if you're a first time founder or a small team. And you're looking up to all these other giants and someone's read Scrum, and they're like, this is what we have to do. But like as soon as you get into that mentality of like, oh, we're not doing stand-ups, we're not agile. It's like, well, no, but who cares, right? Are you doing what you need to do for your right. team?
0: Yeah, we still need to know if work is getting done.
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, are you delivering a customer outcome or not, right? right. That's that's all we really care about. Yeah. How you get there shouldn't be the important part, right? It's going to mm-hmm. change. It's going to change when you're three developers and a founder to when you're 300 people and mm-hmm. multiple locations. You're inevitably going to have to change how you work.
0: Yep. So where had, where do you see people, different companies, processes break along that path of growth? So I imagine the processes, you know, I, I know from being a drift for six months, I know the process is not the same as when I started, and it's probably not going to be the same six months from now as well. How do you, like, what are the inflection points for that?
1: So the inflection points are definitely around, uh, you know, they're actually pretty tightly aligned to uh, fundraising rounds as well, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's something around going from kind of Angel and seed funding to going to A funding where you inevitably hire your first kind of professional product people. You hire those first people who are um, not necessarily a bad way, but like they're professionals, they're career oriented, they're more think you know, it's a job for them. It's not a mission Mm -hmm. as much for them. They're taking less risk on. Um, So that's obviously a big inflection point of like, how do you get those people on board? How do you get them excited about the mission? How do you get them believing in it the same way the founding team does? Um, and then as you scale, I think there are, you know, B round, C round kind of makes sense because those are big inflection points as the team kind of doubles and triples and et cetera in size. So I think those are the inflection points to look out for. But I think the big one for me is definitely around um, delegation. One of the biggest things is founders letting go of their baby and trusting their teams, right? And that's the biggest, hardest thing to do as a founder is to kind of realize that the product is no longer the product that you're caring about. The mm-hmm. company is the product that you have to care about. You have to start thinking about culture and hiring and where should the office be and, you know, all of those other big picture things. Where are you going to raise the money? How are you going to go to market? Yep. Like how do you get the teams talking to each other? Like, that's your product. And I think product people, designers, make great founders, make great CEOs because they have those skills of, like, stepping back from the problem, yep. trying to understand what the problem is. How do we apply the best you know tool sets for this? How do we align everyone? How do we do the communication piece? But they have to let go of the product, right? They have to trust the team to take on that baby and, and trust that they're going to deliver that vision. Right.
0: We talked a lot about, you know, founders about process. What are the biggest mistakes that you see just over and over again?
1: The biggest thing that I see so many startups doing wrong is simply not talking to their customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bang on about this point a lot. But I think it's it's just so fundamental that if if you I, and I think most often you see it, uh, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. when a founder has kind of been the customer or they've been the person who's, you know, got the brainwave because they were the doctors, so they have a better way to build a doctor tool or whatever it is. They so quickly get stuck in on that solution and they focus too much on the solution. Mm-hmm. And I think what we have to do as startups, what we have to do as teams is actually fall in love with the problem. And we have to get excited about the problem. We have to get excited about the space and the mission and the vision, and then everything else will flow from that. But if you get stuck in on the solution, you kind of follow that even if it ends up being the wrong solution, even if it ends up being you know terrible from a unit economics perspective or a go-to-market perspective or whatever it is. But you're so focused in on we build the best widget X that like you can't think any other way, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of my advice tends to be like, how do you step back? How do you think about the problem? How do you actually formulate your mission and vision statements in terms of customer problems? How do you get everyone excited about that? Because then like, we'll afford you a lot of different solutions to achieving that
0: I think I'd like to talk a little bit about the book Mm -hmm. you know I'm just looking for secrets I want to know how to do my job better and prove DC wrong that I'm worth hiring Um, I I
1: still that's why i still do what I do I'm wanting to learn how to do this job better so
0: yeah so my favorite quote from it is daily swims in the ocean of ambiguity are part of the product leader's life it's just the depth that changes I love that quote what does it look like in practice like how can we learn how to do that better and like what what does what does that really mean
1: I think it comes down to so many things that are fundamental to building great products and building great businesses, which is to, to understand that you don't have all the answers. And that's mm-hmm. a really hard thing for most of us to do, right? It's hard as founders, hard as engineers, designers, product managers to really kind of step back from this and go, I don't know what the answer to this is. Um, I don't know the best way to do this. And it comes out in so many different forms, like the biases that we have, the, the approaches that we take, the reason we fall in love with solutions rather than problems and so that Daily Swim in uh, the Sea of Ambiguity quote was all about recognizing that we have to be comfortable not knowing. We have to be comfortable in a constant state of trying to figure out how to do this better, right. not just our job, but also like how to build the product better, how to better, better solve that customer problem. And if we at any point get too comfortable going, oh, I know, I know what to do now. I know how this is working. We probably need to move on or do something else or, or rethink mm-hmm. that really strongly because I think that's a, it's a trap.
0: So that's that. That's the warning point. That I know what I'm doing. That's what we should look out I for. I think so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think uh, if you at any point feel like you know what you're doing, if you at any at any point feel like I know what this customer needs, you're mm-hmm. like, no, hang on a mm-hmm. minute. Either like step back and rethink that, or walk away because you're probably not going to be a great product manager.
0: Right. Let's say we we know, we don't know what we're doing. We are totally agnostic to tools. You know, we're falling in love with the problem. We've nailed everything. Like, what are the big changes coming in product management? Like, what's next? What's the new thing that we should all be paying attention to?
1: So, I think the role is still evolving. I think how we're doing stuff is evolving, and I think again we need to be open to that. And that's why I'm kind of passionately um, methodology agnostic, because so I think it's it's more an approach and a more a, a way of thinking about problems that is important. I think the, the trends that I'm seeing, though, are definitely this kind of move towards autonomy uh, and kind of self-organized teams and co-located teams. And you know the best startups are doing it this way. The best bigger companies are doing it this way. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing more and more proof that like these mission-driven, vision-driven companies organized this way are going to be the most successful. I think most recently, we saw Pluralsight go public uh, just a few weeks ago at a 3 billion dollar valuation proving that kind of their mission driven approach around autonomous teams and they've done it at relative scale they have a thousand mm-hmm. staff Nate my co-author's teams about 700 people and they all work in this way they all work in autonomous teams or they're, they're you know co-located they're doing constant customer discovery um, and it works right so i think that's one of the big things that you know you guys are already all on the leading edge of but a lot of people are not I think the other trend that we're seeing is trying to figure out like how product and engineering and user experience actually fit together. Mm-hmm. Peter Merl-Holtz, uh once said at one of my conferences that product, uh, that user experience as a function only exists because product management isn't doing its job. And I think that's probably fair Yeah. Okay. that before that uh, or you know, old school product management was very much a business led function. It was all about how, mm-hmm. bottom line, it was all, all about ROI and how do we prioritize. And I think modern product management has definitely taken on a lot of those UX things and done other things as well. Mm -hmm. Great UX uh, designers are some of the best product people because they have that bigger picture thinking anyway. Um, So it's not about like one is better than the other, I never really care about people's titles, but I think as we organize our teams and as we organize our companies it's important to think about how do those things work together. Is it actually one whole product experience team, whatever we want to call it, that actually Mm -hmm. works together, um, who actually sits at that management level? Is it a CPO or a chief design officer or both or a CTO, all three? Or is that one team? Like, I think those are the things that we're still trying to figure out. Uh, and again, Pluralsight one of the best examples, I think, where they actually promoted Nate from chief product officer to chief experience officer where he owns that whole function. So he mm-hmm. owns experience and product and engineering as one function because at the end of the day, they have to work together. So yeah. even if we are separate teams, we have to treat it as kind of one team.
0: What's your what's your big prediction for the next in 10 years? What does the product role look like?
1: I I think if I gave that if I knew that answer I would have written another book about it and uh, I think going back to my earlier point if uh-huh. I felt like I knew that I
0: right I then you fall into the trap and, and you should and give up I've yeah into
1: my own trap so I don't know I I hope that we have figured out a lot of these basic things I hope that a lot more teams are working this way I hope that. Uh, we can stop talking about who owns the user and, you know, what methodology we should be using and actually talk about the important things, our customers and what we're doing uh, and how we're impacting the world and how we can make it a better place and all those very lovely high level goals that I'm sure we would all rather be focusing on.
0: Definitely. So thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. One last question. If you had to give our audience three pieces of advice they can go back to their teams right now and implement, what would they be?
1: show don't tell and start small find some little feature find some little area of the site that you can improve or product or, or whatever you're working on that you can improve using this way of working to prove why it's valuable uh that would be number one i think number two is actually pull someone else in right so like if you're a product manager pull an engineer with you the next time you have a conversation with the customer if you're a designer pull the product manager with you or the engineer whatever it is mm-hmm. pull someone else along with you because they will have their eyes opened by what it is that you're experiencing. And they'll also return the fables will so pull you into one of their conversations. And the more that we can do that, the more you're going to be introducing this cross-functional way of thinking. Um, and then I think the last piece would just be figure out how to how to align yourself with your team and with your customer. And I know that's really hard sometimes when you're in the team to get that done. Mm-hmm. But the more that you can think about actually changing your goal or having the conversation about where your OKRs should be or, or however that process works in your organization to make sure that the whole teams are aligned around the same thing and that that is actually a customer goal and not a company goal. Yep. Um, I think that those would be my top three things at least.
0: Awesome. Well, you heard it here. Show, don't tell, fall in love with the problem you're trying to solve, and just talk to customers as much as you possibly can. So that's it for today. Thanks again, Martin. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Build on Seeking Wisdom. Give Martin a shout out in the reviews, six stars only, as usual. Also, let me know what you thought, what else you want to hear. You can always reach me at maggie at drift.com, or we have this new voicemail where you can call in and leave a note at 888 41 drift. So call in and let us know what you think about our new channel, what else you want to hear, or who else I should get on the show. Thanks.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you.